Good morning. Almost afternoon, but still good morning. Uh, my name is Kelly Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. It is good to be with you all this morning and to be in God's word with you this morning. We are in the midst of a series in the book of Genesis. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking particularly at the life of Abraham. And we've already seen how in a number of ways, Abram's life encapsulates the whole story of the Bible. Uh, we've seen how uh, God comes to Abraham and, he, and calls Abraham to himself, not because Abraham was some kind of holy man, uh, but rather he, he calls Abraham when we're told he was worshiping uh, other gods beyond the Euphrates River with his family. And God calls him to, to leave that. He calls him to leave his family. And, and he makes these covenant promises to Abraham and to his offspring. And these are, these are really important promises. And they're, they're going to be really important for today. But he, he promises um, to give Abraham and his offspring a great land. He promises to make them a great people. He promises to uh, bless them with a relationship with himself. And he promises to make them a blessing to all the families of the nations. And actually, if you, if you, if you can kind of get those, uh, those themes, right, in, in your head, you're, you're a good ways toward understanding the story of the Bible. Land, people, relationship with God, and blessing to all the nations. These are themes that go throughout the whole Bible, and again, they'll be important <clears throat> today. These promises are partially fulfilled uh, in the Old Testament. But they are only ultimately fulfilled through Abraham's offspring a couple thousand years later, Jesus Christ. We saw a couple weeks ago how God comes to Abram when, when Abram is struggling with uh, these astounding promises that God has made to him. And God, we saw how God graciously confirms the promises to Abraham. He confirms them through his word. He confirms them through uh, signs, these powerful signs that God gives Abraham of his covenant faithfulness to him. Last week, uh, Chris went back in the story a little bit, and, and we saw Abraham's great faith in God's protection and in God's provision. And so last week, to put it, to put it simply, Abraham was doing pretty good last week, uh, he is walking by faith. Uh, Chris helped us to even see how he is a picture of Christ in that passage. In this week's passage, well, we'll let's see. Uh, let's read Genesis 16, where Abraham is still called Abram, and his wife Sarah is still called Sarai. Uh, the name change is coming soon. Uh, not this week, but coming soon to a sermon near you. All right. Um, so we're in Genesis 16. You can follow along in your order of worship, or if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her servant, or her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for the, the teaching and receiving of it. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. And you've given us your word for our good. You've given us your word that we might have life by you. Lord, we confess this morning that we are in need of your spirit. We are in need of the work of your Holy Spirit moving and stirring in our hearts giving us ears to hear, giving us eyes to see, giving us minds to receive. Lord, that we might see you in your word, that we might see our own hearts, but that we also might see you and your son, Jesus Christ, through your word. So we ask that you would be with us, and in his name, amen. I want to acknowledge at the outset uh, that this passage brings up some potentially painful, sensitive topics, uh, some of which we'll talk about more than others as I seek to be faithful to the heart of the passage. Uh, but I want you to know that, that Chris and I are always willing to, um, to discuss questions um, that come uh, up from the passage or the sermon, um, whether those are tangents or whether they're right at the heart of the, the passage, you are welcome to, to ask us questions. Hopefully I didn't just ask for 200 emails from you, but if that happens, we'll cross that bridge. Um, you are welcome to, to reach out. The first verse... Uh, of our passage reminds us of, of a crucial factor throughout the entire 14 chapter story of Abram and Sarai. And that is that, that, that Sarai is seemingly unable to have children. This in fact is the only thing that we know about her when she, from when she is first introduced back in chapter 11. We know that she, we're, we're told that she is barren. And she's now 76 years old. Uh, she's 10 years younger than Abram, as we know from the next chapter, uh, and so she's probably well past childbearing age. And this is a major crisis in their lives. 
both personally, because much uh, of a woman's status or worldly identity in this culture was, was tied to building a family. But even more significantly to the storyline of, of Scripture, it, it is a major crisis in their minds redemptively. Because you see, all of God's promises to redeem a people for himself, to redeem a family for himself, were tied to Abram's offspring. Now, spoiler alert, uh, Sarah um, is going to have a child uh, by, by God's supernatural intervention at a very old age. But our passage today is obviously the story of how Sarai and Abram sought to resolve this crisis on their own, right? Uh, without success, really, um, and, and through highly questionable means, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but the account itself divides nicely into two parts. There's the part before Hagar flees, verses 1 through 6, which for outline purposes I'm going to call today a barren scheme. And then there's verses 7 to 16, after Hagar flees which we're going to call the life-giving spring. A barren scheme and the life-giving spring. Just so you have an idea, a little forecast of where we're going, I, I really want to give equal weight um, to these two halves of the chapter. They're both equally important, but there's a little bit more to unpack uh, in the first half of the chapter. So um, we'll, spend a we'll spend more time there. I just don't want you to be scared, right, that this is going to be like a three-hour sermon, all right? Um, so anyway, little idea where we're going. And so first, a barren scheme, a barren scheme. Whether this is the first time you've read this story or the 50th time that you have read this story, uh, there, there is a high probability that, that Sarai and Abram's pr proposed solution to her barrenness provokes a, a visceral response in your heart. I mean, we, we can't imagine but they did what? Right? Their, their plan does not compute with our modern Western instincts, which, by the way, are largely and, and specifically in this instance tied to Christian morals and a Christian view of the world. And so if this is your visceral response, that's actually from a Christian point of view, that, that is a good thing that you are shocked by this. Hagar is a, a helpless pawn in this scheme. And while she does receive the, the elevated status of wife, it's clear that she has very few rights in this arrangement. And there are a few things that need to be said about this. First, and, and most obvious, uh, th this practice of polygamy that we see here and the involuntary handing over of a maidservant for marriage and procreation is part of a corrupted cultural system. It is a manifestation of the fall of humanity. In fact, even if, we on, even if the only chapter in the Bible that we had was, was the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, we could see just from there that it would specifically have a profoundly destructive impact on marriage, on sexuality, and the bearing of children. And the scripture doesn't hide from us the, the destructive effects on families of practices like the ones that we see in Genesis 16. And we're going to see the mess that polygamy creates two generations later in the lives of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And later on in King David's family, complete disaster, just to name a couple. And of course we see the effects quite clearly here in Abram's family. 
Hagar now looks down on Sarai in pride, right? Sarai is, is jealous and angry at Hagar, and she blames Abram for what has happened. And Abram, who should be holding on to God's promises tighter than anyone, is both passively and actively complicit in what is going on. It is a spiraling sin fest. The kind that always happens, as we know, in our lives when we try to take hold of the reins from God. The second thing about this practice that needs to be said, however, is that, like it or not, God chooses to work through sinful humans and sinful systems to accomplish his good purposes. Later in Genesis, he's going to work through Jacob's scheming and deception and his polygamous, dysfunctional family with childbearing maidservants to carry on Abram's seed and to bring forth the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to work through the jealousy and betrayal of Joseph's brothers and probably a little bit of Joseph's pride as well in order to eventually save them from famine and carry on Abram's line. He works through, he even works through King David's most heinous sins to carry on the kingly seed of Abraham, ultimately fulfilled in King Jesus. And he ultimately works through a corrupted justice system to bring about salvation for sinners like us on the cross. And so God works through sinful humans and sinful systems. The last thing I'll say here about this specific practice of surrogate motherhood through a maidservant is that it appears to have been entrenched in the ancient Near East throughout the second millennium BC. Scholars point to the Code of Hammurabi and to old Assyrian marriage contracts and to several other documents. Lots of scholars are pointing to these things throughout that millennium uh, to establish or, or to show that this is actually a very common practice, uh, particularly in the case of infertility. And I think that this point will be really important for us in understanding and applying the scripture not because it in any way legitimizes the practice, but because it helps us to see what Sarai and Abram were doing, at least in their minds, would have seemed quite reasonable. It would have been totally acceptable according to the cultural norms. We can't have a child. I have a maidservant. God's made this promise to Abram of offspring. This is what we will do. This was likely one very matter-of-fact line of thinking in their minds. But the fact that they held out for, for a long time for this plan B reveals that Abram and Sarai probably had some inkling that this wasn't right. You see, Sarai was 65, and it already appears that she was infertile when God first calls Abram. And it's been 10 years now. I mean, if they were fully convinced that God had no other plan, why wait 10 years to kick the fulfillment of God's covenant promises into motion? Why not, why not start earlier? For some reason, they had not resorted to this plan B for 10 years, probably because she and Abram had some sense that they should hold out for an act of God. Have you ever had that sense? But 10 years is a very long time to wait for something. In patient faith, 
is wearing thin. In verse 2, Sarai says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see, even this complaint betrays some sense that, that maybe God was going to do something extraordinary, but now he's preventing me. Still, he hasn't done that. And so Sarai and Abram take matters into their own hands. This is actually a pattern um, that we see throughout the Old Testament. Um, just as Sarai and Abram take matters into their own hands with the promise of offspring, the future people of God, uh, a guy named Nicholas Lund very helpfully points out that Israel later takes matters into their own hands with all of God's other covenant promises. Okay, with the promise of, with the promise of land. Some of you might be familiar uh, with the story in Numbers 14 where God has already consigned the nation of Israel to the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure to trust God. And when they, when they get consigned there, they're like, you know what, no, we're going to go up and take the land in our own strength. Even though God said, no, stay here in the wilderness, they said, no, we're going to go do this. And it is an utter failure. They are quickly defeated. It is a barren, empty, unproductive venture without the Lord. They take matters into their own hands with regard to a king. And they go to Samuel and they say, we want a king like all of the other nations. And they don't seek the Lord and they get Saul as their first king. And that is a very barren, unfruitful kingship. They even take matters into their own hands in regard to the promise of their relationship with God. When Moses is up on the mountain too long, what do they do? They make an idol that they can control and manipulate and that is unsurprisingly a disaster. Same pattern as Sarai and Abram taking matters into their own hands. And so if this is the pattern, if we see this pattern um, in God's people throughout Scripture, I want to ask the question this morning, in, in what ways are you and I tempted to take the fulfillment of God's promises into our own hands? Barren schemes that may make perfect sense according to our cultural norms, but are not in faith. And we're going to camp out here for a couple minutes. We're going to keep our finger on this for a couple minutes. Because th this is the heart of the passage, at least, at least the first half of the passage. As I thought about this, as I thought about this in my own life, um, it, it was helpful for me to think through the different covenant promises that God made to Abram and how they apply to us, which is why I've been drilling you this morning on land, people, relationship, blessing, right? So as we think through those categories, let's take the inheritance of land. God promises us that we will inherit a completely renewed earth, overflowing in abundance. That is his promise. A completely renewed and restored earth, overflowing in abundance. This is the promise of material blessing in God. And it is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of the abundant land of Canaan to Abram. And so what are the ways that we attempt to fulfill that promise apart from God? I don't intend for this list to be exhaustive. Um, I'm only going to mention a couple ways that we might attempt to fulfill this promise. But maybe it's, a, maybe it's, pursuing, maybe it's pursuing a career that makes perfect sense in the world standards and by financial evaluation. But that's not really taking into account how God might want to use the gifts that I have, whatever those gifts might be, to serve him. 
Or maybe you thought about that five years ago or ten years ago, but you've stopped trying to make connections between how God's equipped you and how you can serve him in your work or between the relationships you have at work in the kingdom of God. Maybe it's pursuing or, or pushing our kids to pursue a worldly inheritance through college acceptances. Starting when they're two. This is more than acceptable, right, in Charlottesville. And I have wrestled with this big time in our family. And college acceptances can be good. They are not a bad thing. But we can too easily put that first rather than seeking the kingdom first in our families. We have to be honest. It could be, it could be cheating or plagiarizing, which is culturally acceptable in, in some circles, or cutting the corners that, quote, everyone does on our taxes to help usher in an inheritance of houses, cars, and possessions. What about God's promise, his amazing promise of, of people in a relationship with him? God promises us that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy the perfect love of the family of God in the immediate presence, face to face with God himself. That is his promise. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abram to make him, his offspring, a great nation, enjoying the blessing of God and he calls, he calls us as the church to live into this promise. But how do we attempt to fulfill this promise apart from God? It may be pursuing a, a relationship that, that makes so much worldly sense. We like the same things. We have so much to talk about. Our careers align. But, but we know or we at least have a sense that God's not really in the middle of it. It may be pursuing uh, fulfillment according to, to cultural norms of fitting in socially or cultural norms of dating or cultural norms of pornography rather than waiting on God for fulfillment and finding fulfillment in him and in the body of Christ. It may be trying to, ch I know none of you all have done this, but it may be trying to change our kids or our spouses or our spouse we're not polygamous here, but um, it may be trying to change our kids or spouse or friends. And surely we are called to be part of each other's spiritual growth. But are we self-righteously relying on our efforts and or manipulation to change them rather than relying ultimately on the supernatural grace of God? <clears throat> what about the promise of being a blessing to all the families of the earth. God promises us, promises us that he will use us as his servants in building his church, the fulfillment of all the families of the earth being blessed through Abraham. And you would think that if there was one promise that we wouldn't rely on ourselves for and we wouldn't take into our own hands, it would be, it would be this one, being a blessing to others. Certainly we need God there. But remarkably, we even take this one into our own hands. And what this often looks like in my life is I, there will be a period of, of dependency and, and desperation even for God to work. And then, I, and then I'll see God working around me and I'm, and I'm thankful for a second. Um, but then that, that turns into a, a self-reliance. I'm, I'm happy with, with what I'm seeing. And so I have this subconsciously or semi-consciously uh, self-reliance that I've got this. 
that I'm, I'm, I'm okay with God at arm's length. And I think we really need to think about this as a church, that when we go through periods of seeing God work, seeing God gather people, seeing uh, people come into the church and seeing lives transformed around us, which is hopefully happening, do we then get cocky? Do we, do we grow self-reliant or will we continue to humbly rely on the supernatural grace of God to change lives? Lord, let it be the latter. So finally, in, um, finally I, I want us to see one more foundational way that our passage points to our efforts to help God uh, bring these covenant promises to fruition. And, and it's a foundational way that Paul actually points to in Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament. He actually compares the efforts to bring forth a child through Hagar to our efforts uh, to earn God's favor by obeying God's law. And he calls us instead into the grace and freedom of God's promise, which is pictured in the promised son Isaac, who was to come for Sarah, who will be supernaturally born by her, right? So he calls us to live in the grace and freedom of this promise, this unmerited promise, rather than in the slavery of obey, trying to obey God's law and earn his favor. And this is more foundational, I would say, because when we really know this grace and freedom and when we know that our soul is secure because we have died and been raised with Christ and when we're living in that unconditional love then the temptations to prematurely usher in the covenant promises of God begin to fade we begin to see them for the barren empty schemes that they are. When we know the love of Christ, we, we begin to realize that his, his love is so much more satisfying than trying to bring these things in and take matters into our own hands. And we begin to see that through him and as he works in us, we will bear lasting fruit in our lives. It might not be through biological children. It might not be, be things that the world sees as valuable but through Christ, we will actually bear lasting fruit. We see this grace more fully in the second half of the chapter. In stark contrast to Abram and Sarai's barren scheme, we find the life-giving spring. The life-giving spring. In verse 7, Hagar is an outcast. She's an Egyptian She's away from her homeland. She's probably on the way back to Egypt. She's run off by harsh treatment. She is a pawn in a corrupted system, but also one who has sinned against Sarai. And God comes to her in verse 8 asking, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Several scholars point out that this is the only known occurrence in all of ancient Near Eastern literature of a deity calling a woman by name. God knows her name. And his questions to her are reminiscent of, of his questions to Adam and Eve in the garden when they are fleeing and God pursues them. And he comes and he, he knows the answer to the questions, but he asks them questions to draw out their hearts. It's reminiscent of Jesus' many encounters in the New Testament when he asked questions to draw out people's hearts, to bring them to himself. And what does God promise Hagar here? 
He promises her offsprings that cannot be numbered in verse 10. He promises her a people. In verse 11, he, he names her son Ishmael, which means God hears. In a similar scene in chapter 21, when Ishmael's about 15 years old, we're told that God was with the boy. Now, I want to admit um, that the prophecy in verse 12 about Ishmael is, uh, admittedly, it's not, it's not very encouraging, right? Um, a wild donkey of a man, probably referring to his independence, his hands against everyone. God tells it like it is, how he knows it will be. But I take heart in the fact that actually later in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob's blessing the 12 tribes, three of the 12 tribes of Israel actually receive equally discouraging prophecies about them. And they're actually within the blessing of Abraham. And so blessing exists within a very broken world for Abraham's offspring as well as for Hagar's. They're, she's not part of these covenant promises in, in that way, um, but um, the blessing exists within a very broken world. What is really encouraging is, is how Hagar receives the blessing of Ishmael. She has this threefold response uh, in verses 13 and 14, this threefold response to the God who hears. First in verse 13, she says, you are a God of seeing. Second, truly I have seen him who looks after me. And third, in verse 14, she names the well Beer Lahai Roy. And if you have footnotes in your Bible, you will see that this also means the living one who sees me. It's very clear that Hagar knows that the true God sees her, sees her affliction, and intimately cares for her. Just as Hagar is the only woman in the ancient Near Eastern literature to be called by name by God. She's also the only human in the Old Testament to confer a name on God. She not only praises God with her lips, we know from the following chapters that she also obeys God's command in verse 9 to go back to Sarai. He's calling Hagar to be faithless or to be faithful in a faithless system. And she is. She exercises faith. She obeys the Lord. She goes back to this situation that is filled with tension. I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a dangerous situation physically for her, but it is a very difficult situation. It's perhaps the most stable situation she could imagine in her vulnerable state, given the stability and wealth of Abraham. And so perhaps God is calling her back to protect her and her child in his formative or his early years. As powerful um, and important as God's intimate pursuit of Hagar is, Hagar is bigger than Hagar, just as Abraham is bigger than Abraham. The Quran would say that Hagar is bigger than Hagar because uh, the Quran traces Islam back to Abraham and Ishmael. Those connections are, are tenuous historically, but it's also a very different version of Abraham and Ishmael because in the Quran they actually go and they build the Kaaba which is the most holy place in Islam at the center of Mecca. So it's a very different <laughs> Abraham and Ishmael in that story. 
But Hagar is actually bigger than Hagar because even though she is not physically within the line of God's promise, and even though she's actually from one of God's future enemies, Egypt, God pursues her and he invites her into a relationship with him. 1,800 years later, Jesus is going to visit another woman at the well who is also one of Israel's enemies, a Samaritan woman. And he is going to offer her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The same thing occurs here at the very beginning of Israel's history. The angel of the Lord, who appears to be God himself, a representation of God himself, rather than a messenger of God, he meets with Hagar, and she says that she has seen the one who looks after her. In Hagar, God is already at work drawing all the families of the nations to himself. And what this means is that all of us, Jew or Gentile, outcast or insider, three-piece suit or sandals and shorts, are invited into a relationship with the God who sees us. The God who sees our sin, who sees our affliction, who sees our vulnerability, who sees our shame. We are invited in. If you are not, if you're not a Christian this morning, or, or even or if you are, I hope that you see the kindness and goodness of a God who pursues this vulnerable woman whose life is falling apart. He pursues her and he calls her in. This passage is here in scripture so that we would know that the God who sees is the God who sees us. So that we would know that just as he called Hagar into a relationship with himself, he calls us into a relationship with himself. All of us in this story are invited to give up our barren schemes to fulfill God's promises prematurely and to receive the life-giving spring, which is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the Lord who pursues us. Thank you that you pursued us in Christ all the way to the cross. We thank you that he is Abraham's offspring who came to fulfill all these glorious promises and that just as sure as you, Jesus, were raised from the dead and are at the right hand of God the Father, that is how sure our promises are in you. Lord, I pray that this week that we would live in these promises, that you would protect our hearts from running after all the things that the world and our culture tell us will fill our hearts and bring in these promises in false ways. Lord, I pray that we would look to you, that you would be our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.